0: The point of the Sermon on the Mount is to highlight, to showcase the predicament of human life, namely the tension that exists between what I am and what I need to be. Tell me you didn't feel that tension when I read these verses. I mean, tell me that those of you who have ever been angry. Those of you who have been divorced, those of you who have ever lusted, tell me you did not feel inside the tension that exists between what you are and what you need to be. And that's precisely Jesus' goal here showcase, to elevate that tension, to make you aware that it is there. It's this tension actually in your life and mine that is the cause of worry and depression and guilt and anger and anxiety and so on. And when you and I begin to feel this tension, we try to deal with it in one of two ways. One way, and this is the way of most of us, okay, this is our default mode. One way is to simply convince ourselves that we can become what we need to be with hard work and grit and determination. Okay, that's one way. We feel this tension, and the voice of do this and live, do more, try harder comes to the forefront of our minds, and we determine we can do it, okay, with a little extra discipline and hard work, we can pull this off. The second way to deal with this tension is to acknowledge your helplessness and cry for mercy. Okay, two different ways. We come, we become aware of this tension that exists, what I am and what I need to be. All of us feel it. People outside the church feel it too. I don't have to read these verses for people who aren't Christians and people outside the church to feel it. There is the, the voice of law, the voice of pressure, the voice of accusation that exists, as I've mentioned before, when it comes to just the pressure, societal pressure to be thin, to be beautiful, to be successful, to be good, to to obey the rules, to whatever, okay, to make something of yourself, to become someone of importance, to change the world, whatever. We hear this everywhere we go. We see it. Commercials, advertisements on television and billboards are driven by this. Trying to elevate this tension that will help you think to yourself, okay, I feel the difference between what I am and what I need to be. And if I just purchase this product, maybe I'll be able to rescue myself from what I am into what I need to be. Okay, so people inside the church, people outside the church, Romans chapter 1, Paul says, the voice of law is not only heard on the outside, it's also felt on the inside. It's the imprint of all of our consciences. So this tension is real. And when we feel it, we go in one of two directions. We come to, we come to a fork in the road. We can either say, okay, I can pull this off. I can do it. Uh, or we say, I'm at the end of my rope, and as someone once said, God's office is at the end of our rope. I love that line. But we, I'm at the end of my rope. No matter how hard I try, I can't pull this off, and you beg for mercy. Well, option one, the I can do it, I can make it happen, requires you to lower the demand. What we're going to find out here is Jesus does not lower the demand. He gives us no wiggle room. I mean, none. Okay? None at all. If you, whatever the reason, okay? And this is controversial, and I, so, but, gee, this is controversial. Okay? I was just stunned when I read this again the other day. If you, if you have been divorced, all right? This will make, when my mom and dad uh, got divorced, uh, if you have been divorced, and, um, and uh, divorce for other reasons except for sexual immorality, Jesus says you deserve to go to hell. Alright? Now, if you've ever lusted, ever, ever, once, Jesus says you deserve to go to hell. If you've ever been angry, if you've ever lashed out at someone, ever, because you're frustra- because you're frustrated. Even if you think in your mind you're justified that this person made me mad, therefore I have the right to tell him I'm mad, or tell her I'm mad, or whatever. You deserve to go to hell. I mean, this is what he's saying. <laughs> no wiggle room. OK? It is a dead end if you choose option one. I know how to relieve this tension. I'll just do more and try harder. That's how I'll do it. Jesus says, like a good Calvinist, good luck, okay? I mean, seriously. He says, okay, let me just show you how deep this goes. Let me show you how profound this actually is because option one requires you to lower the demand, to set the bar near to the ground, to make the law doable. That's what option one says. He can't really be meaning this. I mean, seriously. I, you know, I, I, uh, I was divorced. Let's say you say I was divorced, and okay, it wasn't for sexual immorality, but I mean, there, was, there were some extenuating circumstances that justified. I mean, I'm reading through this list, and I'm finding myself guilty of so much of what's here, trying to come up with a rationalization for why Jesus can't be meaning what He's actually saying. Maybe this is just a rhetorical device that he's using to sort of shock people, okay? Maybe this is just some, you know, literary genre he's employing to sort of, you know, make us uncomfortable. Maybe that's what he's doing. Well, um, that's what option one requires you to do. He can't be meaning what he means here. My enemy slaps me in the face and I'm supposed to let him slap me on the other side? And when someone who rips me off, when someone who, rip, who, who steals $100 from me uh, to someone who steals $100 from me, I'm supposed to give him another $100? I mean, what? This is craziness, okay? You understand now why people in Jesus' day thought he was mad? I mean, there were all sorts of qualifications to the law that had come down through the pike via tradition. Okay, but, this is why Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, but. I'm going to show you in a minute. He's not pitting the old sayings against the new sayings. He's actually showing the, intensi- the intensification of what God originally meant. Okay, so he's, I mean, this is, this is a madman preaching. Everyone in the crowd the prostitute, the Pharisee, the tax collector, the good guy, the not good guy, the old, the sweet old woman, and the rebellious teenager are all sitting there and all of them are going, guilty. How can you listen to him say this and walk away going, okay, thank God, I've, I've got all that stuff licked? I mean, he wants to nail everybody through these verses. Nobody is getting off. Okay, nobody here. So, option two refuses to lower the demand. Option two allows the requirements and the demands to be all that God intends them to be. And option two actually is the only option that will help you find freedom in the one who came to do for you what you could never, ever, ever do for yourself." So life demands, as you know, I mean life demands many things from us. It demands a successful career, a stable marriage, good children, a certain quality of life, and more often than not when we feel these demands we respond with determination and fierce will. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus brought a fresh and radical insight to the endless human struggle with demand, and he associates it with weakness rather than strength. He associates it with failure rather than success. In fact, he shows, he shows that our helplessness before the devastation and the comprehensiveness of God's expectations is actually what creates the space for God's amazing grace and the freedom it produces. In other words, what he wants to show is that death becomes the precondition for a brand new life. That's what he wants to do. Hey, this is, listen to me, if you think That these verses, or the Sermon on the Mount, is intended to be, first and foremost, a blueprint for living so that you can have your best life now? You're reading it wrongly. He wants to crush you. He wants these verses to put you to death. I mean, this is the hammer of God taking blow after blow after blow on all human pride On all human optimism, on this self righteous notion that we can do this, we can pull it off, we're really not that bad. Well, I haven't killed anybody, well, I haven't actually had an affair. Jesus says, in God's economy, it doesn't matter. Both are deserving of hell. Okay? So this is. This is law on steroids, all right? And Jesus wants us to feel the tension. He wants to bring us to our knees. He wants to make us desperate. I mean, listen, those who revel in grace, okay, are those who have a high view of the law, You know, sometimes you hear, and I mentioned this a number of weeks ago, sometimes you hear people make the accusation that those who talk about grace a lot have a low view of God's law. It's actually just the opposite. (laughs) Those who talk about grace a lot and who revel in it and stand on it are the ones who have the highest view of God's law. They've come to terms with the totality of demand. And they realize that in God's economy, perfection is the requirement. And when we come to the realization that there is no wiggle room, there's no holy God who turns a blind eye and says, okay, so I don't expect you to be perfect. You know, I'm not, nobody's perfect. God doesn't say that, okay? He expects perfection, He demands perfection. And those who revel in grace are those who have a high view of the law because they realize the bar is so high that they're forced to say, I can't do it. Unless help comes, I'm ruined. Okay, that that's why um, that's why grace is is so championed here. Okay, because we have a super duper high view of God's law. (laughs) We have, I dare to say, as high a view of God's law as Jesus has." In other words, I believe this stuff. I'm not trying to look for qualifications to what he's saying here. I believe this and um, to the degree that we think we can basically make it on our own, we'll start saying stuff like, can't we move on now? Haven't we heard enough about this grace thing? If that's you, your view of God's law is very low. You never, ever move on from grace. You better not. If you do, you're crushed, demolished, absolutely enslaved. Only an inflexible picture of what God demands is able to penetrate the depth of our need and convince us that we never, never outgrow our need for grace, that grace never gets overplayed. So if you want to say that to someone, tell it to the judge. Don't tell it to me. We never, we'll never move past it. Ever. Never. I can't move past it because I'm a sinner so are you. God's law is inflexible and that makes the way of God's grace absolutely indispensable. Robert Capon wrote this prayer and this is a prayer that reflects and mirrors our struggle because we're all addicted to believing that we can pull this off. Okay, so listen to what he says. Lord, please restore to us the comfort of merit and demerit. In other words, I find comfort in the realization that I can, there are things I can do that I can get good stuff from, and there are things that I can avoid that I can avoid bad stuff from. That's the economy that I like to work in. Good people get good stuff, bad people get bad stuff. I want to stay there. So he says, Lord, please restore to us the comfort of merit and demerit. Show us that there is at least something we can do. Tell us at the end of the day there will at least be one redeeming card of our very own. Lord, if it's not too much to ask, send us to bed with a few shreds of self-respect upon which we can congratulate ourselves. But whatever you do, do not preach grace. Give us something to do anything but spare us the indignity of this indiscriminate acceptance. Woo! Now I'm going to listen to me. Follow me with your minds cuz I'm going to read a portion of that again. You have to listen to the poetry of what he says. Whatever you do, do not preach grace. Give us something to do anything but spare us the indignity of this indiscriminate acceptance. We're troubled when we read parables where bad people get off scot-free. Bothers us. The all-day workers get paid the same amount as the guys who show up an hour before the day's over because they were out partying all night. Bothers us, okay? And when the landowner gives them the same wage, We say, that's unfair, okay? I mean, that's just unfair. You work eight hours, you should get paid more than if you work one hour with a hangover. Okay, I mean, the younger brother in Luke 15 gets a party when he comes home. I mean, the guy has just spent however long, um, you know, I mean, prostitutes wasting money partying God knows what finally goes home. The older brother has stayed home for years doing everything he's told, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, doing everything he's told. And the younger brother comes home and the father's thrilled and runs and gives him a party. Let's be honest, some of us feel like the older brother. You know, I've done this all my life. I've actually tried hard all my life. I never got a party. All right, It just seems unfair. We read about these people who get off scot-free. And we think to ourselves, unfair, until God's law hits us over the head and causes us to realize that scot-free is the only way any of us are going to get off at all. That's it. The way of God's grace becomes indispensable. Because the way of God's law is absolutely inflexible, and so Jesus wants to set us free by showing us our need for a rightness that we can never attain on our own, an impossible righteousness that is always, always, always out of our reach. Well, last week I showed that there is no getting around God's demand. It has to be fulfilled. In sending Jesus, God wasn't saying, let's sweep the demand under the rug. Okay, Jesus said very plainly, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. And then um, this week's passage kind of fills in the content of that righteousness. What is it that has to be fulfilled? Specifically, give me some examples, Jesus. You say, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's all fine and good, but I need some specific examples of the righteousness that needs to be fulfilled. What specific law needs to be fulfilled? In other words, what does this look like? What are you actually doing for me by fulfilling the law? And so um, this week's passage fills in. Jesus explains what that is. I mean, verse 20 uh, of chapter 5 kind of raises the question when Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And it leaves people going, what does that look like? What then is the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? And chapter 5, verses 21 to 48 gives the answer. Now, in a sense, as you break this passage down, uh, chapter 5, verses 21 to 47 is a preface, okay, almost a forward, if you will, to chapter 5, verse 48. In other words, everything he says in chapter 5, verse 21 to 47, crescendos, culminates. The main point is made, in other words, in verse 48, which states, as I just read, the demand in its most radical form. All that he says in verses 21 to 47 can be summed up in what he says in verse 48, where he says, in other words, be perfect. The only way you're going to make this is if you are God. All right? That's what he says. Now, traditionally, this whole section is called the antithesis because when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, some have claimed, as I said a minute ago, that Jesus is pitting new sayings versus old sayings or new sayings against old sayings, but that's not what he's doing. Okay, what he's doing is showing that God's law extends beyond outer behavior To what's actually going on in the heart so that we hear God's demand in an intensified way. And what he's doing here is he's showing that the law's demands extend to what's going on inside of us, our feelings, our motivations, our thoughts. Not only external actions, but internal feelings and motives must be absolutely pure all the time. Your thoughts must be pure all the time. Now, this is why this is trouble for us, all right? Human defense systems, and I'm not talking about war. I'm talking about our natural internal defense systems. Our natural human defense system lives by the thought-action distinction. So there's thought and there's action, and that distinction between thought and action is very, very, very important to our own defense of ourselves. Okay, I'll show you how this plays out in a minute. Super important, and you'll see when I tease this out that every single one of us depends in a sense on this distinction between thoughts and actions. I mean, therapists are always telling people that it's okay to have the thought so long as it did not lead to the act. So if you go sit with a counselor and say, my 17-year-old son, this is not autobiographical by the way, okay, my 17-year-old son is driving me crazy and I have to admit, um, you know, therapist so-and-so, Dr. Phil, I have to admit that uh, there are times when, I mean, I just want to literally with my hands rip the flesh off of his skull okay? I'm not talking about my son here, you sinners. More likely, I'm talking about your son, okay? Uh, So, um, I want to… Now, the therapist is going to try to help us understand why, blah, 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 but the ultimate comfort will come from the therapist doing their best to try and convince us that, well, everybody has thoughts like that, you know? And as long as it doesn't lead to you actually, you know, um, pulling off a, you know, pulling off His flesh from His skull, which you'll probably go to jail for, uh, then, you know, everybody deals with that. You, you understand it's how we sort of operate, okay? Um, I mean, wanting to kill someone is one thing, but actually killing someone, well, that's another matter. See how we do this? I mean, wanting to kill someone. How many of you have ever wanted to kill someone, or at least wished for their death? Don't raise your hand. Um, Husbands and wives are like... uh, I mean, how many of you have ever wished for someone to die or wanted to kill someone, but you find some level of comfort believing that, well, I mean, but I didn't do it. Okay? Which is good. But, I mean, I didn't do it. So, you see how this thought, act, you know, how many of you have lusted after a woman? Men, how many of you have lusted after a woman, and in some way, shape, or form, you feel guilty and you feel bad or whatever, but you're like, well, I mean, at least I didn't do what he did, which was actually sleep with a woman who's not his wife, okay? We do this all the time, all right? Um, I mean, wanting to kill someone is one thing, but actually, killing someone's another matter. Only in the eyes of the state, not God. You understand? This thought action distinction uh, is a human defense mechanism, but this wanting to kill, according to Jesus, don't argue with me, according to Jesus, wanting to kill someone and actually killing them. Well, that's a different story, not according to God. Both deserve hell and judgment. Jesus uh, insists that anger and murder are equally liable to judgment and hell, and he shows that in God's economy there is an equality between intention and action, thought and deed. And then when he addresses lust and adultery, he goes even deeper. (laughs) Um, Not only are thought and action equally liable to judgment, they are actually the same thing. Lust is adultery, he says. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The impulse is the is the sin, the thought is the sin. So he goes even deeper. He's removing any wiggle room, taking away any qualifications and erasing any footnotes that we desperately and frantically try to come up with to figure out how to deal with this. These demands are intense. They're deep. They're wide. Um, And these two pictures specifically demolish the defense system of the thought-deed distinction Because it's that thought-deed distinction, okay, but whether you know this about yourself or not, it's that thought-deed distinction. I want to rip his face off, but I didn't, okay. I mean, I hate her, but I didn't punch her, okay. I mean, I hate his guts, but I didn't tell him I hated his guts, okay. We do this all the time, okay. And because we develop this sort of thought-deed distinction, it prevents us from seeing how bad we really are, and how desperate we really are for Jesus. Paul's all puts it this way, under the law of Moses, expanded now 10,000 times in scope by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the human race in its entirety are showed to be stoned. And what he meant by that is that was the law's punishment for murder and adultery, stoning. And he says, this, this shows the entire human race stoned. Okay? You know what I mean. <laughs> um, and the point is that the equalization of thought and action leaves us with nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and places all of us under the law's death sentence. And the reason this is so important is because there are so many of us, so many of us who think we're actually pulling it off when we obey even though we don't want to obey. Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. We actually think we're doing it if, we, if we're angry but do not murder we're pulling it off. If we're lusting but not having an affair we're pulling it off. <clears throat> if we're, if we're you know divorced but there's some good reasons and the state validated it we're pulling it off. Hey, we're, all, we're all guilty of believing that. Um, when we obey, even though we don't want to, we're making it. In fact, this is so ironic to me, okay? Think about this. Where did we get the idea that if we do what God tells us to do, even though our hearts are far from him, that it's something to be proud of? You know, that it's something admirable, something praiseworthy. We actually elevate that form of obedience. We become more proud of that form of obedience. We did it, and we didn't even want to. You know? We showcase our self-discipline and our self-control, and we self-righteously showcase our grit and determination. You know what? I didn't want to do it, but I did it anyway. And we go, wow, that's amazing. You're a spiritual giant. Okay? Where did we get the idea that if we obey God even though we don't want to, that it's a good thing? Now, don't get me wrong, we we should obey when we don't feel like it. I expect that from my children, and I I mean, God expects that, okay? I'm not saying that we should obey when we don't feel like it, but this is the deal. Let's not make the common mistake of proudly equating that with the righteousness that God requires. Okay? That's the... I mean, listen, doing the right thing with the wrong heart reveals deep unrighteousness not devout righteousness so the first thing that you and I should do when we do the right thing with the wrong heart is repent okay it doesn't showcase wow you're, you're a good guy man you're so disciplined and you just you're so selfless you do things even we don't want to do it there's something messed up about not wanting to do it okay that's what jesus is saying The demand extends to your thoughts, and your feelings, and your motivations, unless those things are perfect. Do you want to obey God all the time? Do you want to love your wife as Christ loved the church all the time without interruption, in perfect purity? Wives, do you want to submit to your husbands all the time with perfection and purity? I mean, come on. Don't tell me you want to move past God's grace. God, that's your only hope. <laughs> okay, mine too. Um, i a little fired up this morning. Can you tell? <laughs> okay, I'm just... Uh, well, it gets worse, so don't clap yet. Um, the rest of the passage just keeps piling it on. Okay, he doesn't... It's like, well, lust, anger, and then we move on to some easier territory. I mean, he just piles it on. No divorce without a biblical warrant or you're guilty of adultery. Period. Yeah, but what about period? All right. No oaths or swearing. You have to always tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help you God. Always, always, and forever. No revenge or vengeful thoughts. And don't love just your neighbors, but also your enemies. Yes. That means that person, okay? Whoever that person is, that guy, the one you can't stand, the relative, the in-law, the coworker, the bully, you name it, love him perfectly. Not moments of, I feel sorry for him because he's such a jerk. Perfect, sacrificial, Jesus-like love. It's your enemy, okay? I mean, he just, it gets thicker and thicker and more and more intense, hotter and hotter as this passage moves on. And then after all this, the gracious death blow, the merciful impasse, the glorious impossibility, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So there you go. Let's close in prayer. Some people would actually, not people here, I don't think, but some people uh, in the church actually want sermons to end like that. Go out and do it. Here's your checklist to get to this point. End of story. What does it do? Fuels, first of all, it's such a low standard and such a doable law that it doesn't reflect what Jesus says here, so it's unbiblical, all right? Second, it just bolsters your pride. I think I have the capacity to pull it off. Um, Third, it makes you terribly self-righteous. I'm doing it. He's not. That must make me better than him. And fourthly, it will cause you to crash and burn. Because when you finally take God at his word, and you finally listen to the totality of the demand, you are slayed, finished, legs cut off. And you become desperate. And it's when you die that you live. When you finally give up, you're free. And that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to rub our nose in our own unavoidable failure so that we will finally, finally look away from ourselves. Finally, it's so hard, isn't it? I mean, we're just so naturally, terribly narcissistic, we just can't take our, I, tell me what to do. No. I'm gonna tell you about the one who has done for you what you could never in 10 trillion years do for yourself. All right, that's it. I mean, our only hope is to look away from ourselves, the entire Old Testament. You know what the goal of the Old Testament was? The entire Old Testament built the need for a Savior. So the entire Old Testament's about. It's about building the need for a Savior. Showing you and me and everybody who lived how desperately hopeless the human race is and how desperate they needed a Savior to deliver them. It's the whole Old Testament's about. And so, five, chapter 5 verse 17 says, now the Old Testament ends with the people of God going, where is this covenant-keeping king? We thought maybe David was it, and we thought maybe Solomon was it. Where is this covenant-keeping king who alone can release us from bondage? The whole Old Testament, and then there's 400 years of silence known as the intertestamental period. And then in Matthew, after 400 years of God not speaking, this covenant-keeping king arrives. Not in royal fashion, not on some golden chariot, he comes in the form of a frail, small, according to the Bible, not very attractive baby, born not in a hotel, not even an inn a motel in a stable. And where does God advertise His arrival? At the palaces and the places of influence? Nope. To a bunch of lowly shepherds sitting on a hill and says, the King has come, the one one that the entire Scripture built the need for and convinced you that you desperately needed, has finally arrived. He's here. The entire Bible is about this law fulfiller that you and I need. I mean, chapter 5, verse 17 says that Jesus came to fulfill the law, and that is the story that the New Testament tells, okay? Hebrews says he was tempted in every way, but... but didn't sin, unlike us. No sinful anger, no lust. He didn't retaliate when he was attacked, but actually healed his accuser in the garden when his disciple tried to fight for him. Just one example. He actually gave to those who asked of him. It's one of the demands. Always give to those who ask. He actually gave. He gave sight and healing and life and forgiveness. He actually went the extra mile with the splinters of the cross digging into his bleeding naked back. He loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him as he fought the suffocation of crucifixion to say, Father, forgive those who are killing me and mocking me. Jesus and Jesus alone was and is and always will be perfect as His Father in heaven is perfect. So don't you dare tell me you want me to talk about someone else, ever. It is your hope. It is my hope. Jesus Himself said, lift up Christ, lift me up and I will draw all men to myself. We become sanctified not by talking about what we do. We become sanctified when our hearts are gripped by what God in Christ has done. Okay? So sanctification and Christian growth happens not by checking off your checklists it happens by being so mesmerized and swept off your feet by the size of God's unconditional love and his amazing grace that you literally walk away with a warmed heart going take my life and let it be consecrated lord to thee prior love leads to love belovedness leads To love. So, because of Jesus, listen, because of Jesus, our anger, our murder, our lust, our adultery, our lies, our hatred, all of it is forgiven. (laughs) It's craziness. And while you remember your sins, God doesn't. He actually does forgive and forget. You don't believe me? Let me conclude with this before we come to the Lord's table Psalm 103. Psalm 103 verses 10 through 12, what a great summary of the gospel. Psalm 103 verses 10 through 12, He does not deal with us according to our sins. Underline that, okay? Read it tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, every day until Jesus comes back or you die. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. So who was dealt with for our sin? I mean, who was, who was repaid for our iniquities? See how this is building the case? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him as far, and this is the hardest verse in the Bible for anyone to believe, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, Jehovah knoweth none."